When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock. Pastor Nick. Pastor Nick, ack, 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 ack. Billy Joel needs to do a Billy Joel echo on that one. Hello again, and welcome to episode 57 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines, heroes, and villains of the late 20th century. I'm Katie Puckrick. And I am Tom Fordyce. How, Tom, how did we get to where we are today? Well, Billy thinks it might have something to do with Pasternak. Ah, you mean Boris Pasternak, Casey, the Russian poet and author. Yes, I think that is the bunny. (laughs) Because we have got things wrong with with Billy sometimes, but that is the Pasternak we are talking about. The man, of course, who wrote the magnificent, the opus, Dr. Zhivago. Dr. Z. Dr. Z, a huge book. It wins the Nobel Prize for literature. It also, Katie, becomes a massive film in about 1965, Mm. about seven years after the period that we're talking about today. It stars Julie Christie and Omar Sharif. Was this film um, on your radar before the book, Katie? Uh, The film very much still on the radar before the book, which I need to get around to reading, which I'll be able to do after we learn all about it today. But I remember being a child living in the American embassy in Moscow, as I've mentioned to you before, and this was at the height of the Cold War in the early 70s. And one of the little perks of my parents' jobs as diplomats was that we would have screenings of American films. So we'd, we'd be sent these huge canisters of 16 millimeter films and we had projectors and we'd pull down the, the film screen at the end of the, the big long living room and sometimes the films would be classic films, and then a lot of times they were kind of pulpy things and spaghetti westerns and horrors, hammer horrors, all of those sort of things. And one of the films that we'd been sent was Dr. Zhivago. So this would have been like six or seven years after it came out. And one afternoon, my mother staged a special screening for two of the Russian ladies who worked for us. So we had a maid named Mila and a cook named Vera because my parents had to throw parties all the time. So we had staff. And uh, so it was all like, you know, James Bond style, (laughs) high-end diplomat hoo-ha. And so my mom thought, hey, I bet these Russian ladies would get a real kick out of watching this film of a book that 
at the time in the early 70s was still banned. And I remember watching Vera and Mila transfixed. Like they were just transcendentally transfixed and and wrapped and and reverent, you know. And they, I don't even think they spoke all that great English, but just drinking it in and the idea that this is something that they weren't allowed to look at, it was contraband. So uh, it was almost like, I remember thinking, it's like they're witnessing a visitation from beyond. And in fact, they were. Wow. Yeah. That's a great story, Katie. Um, My own dabblings with Dr. Zhivago also begin with the film version because it would be on British television at least once a year, usually when we were staying at my granny's. And my granny and my mum would sit down on the sofa and watch the full three hours and all the rest of it length. While as children, we would be bored out of our minds. <laughs> you would go off and do something and the film would still be on. You'd go off and do something else and the film would still be on. And at some point in the film, when Julie Christie... The luminous Julie Christie was on screen. My dad will come out with one of his top three stories. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, my dad's top three stories of his past. Number one, he saw England win the World Cup at Wembley in 1966. He was there. Number two, he saw the Beatles live twice. It wasn't a big deal, apparently. Number three, get this, Katie. He reckons he was once at a party in swinging London in the 60s where he went into the party and there was one room which was very empty. So he went into the other room and it was very full. And the reason that room was very full was because it contained Julie Christie. And while at the party, so the story goes, my dad went over to Julie Christie and said, would you care to dance? And she said yes. And for one solitary song, my dad danced with Julie Christie. And does he remember the song? He doesn't remember the song. (laughs) Maybe his entire brain has been taken up by Julie Christie's face being about two inches from his own. (laughs) Does he remember what kind of dancing they were doing? I'll text him and try and find out. (laughs) I mean, I've got no idea if this story is true, but he has claimed it, particularly every time Dr. Chivago comes on screen. He'll just stroll in, lean on the mantelpiece. Did I tell you about the time? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is a great story, and I think it's probably even better than England winning the World Cup or seeing the Beatles. (laughs) is. But Katie, enough of our meaningless meanderings. We would like to introduce our guest for today who can tell us much more about Boris Pasternak and Dr. Zhivago. And that is Annie Cocker-Bobo, who is the Associate Professor and Chair at the Department of Slavic Languages and Literature at the University of Kansas. She is also an expert in Russian literature. Welcome, Annie. Hi, thanks for having me. So there's so much we can talk about here, Annie. Can you start off just by giving us an idea of why Boris Pasternak is such a huge figure in Russia? Um, I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think he had such a complicated start, right? He began as a musician. Oddly enough, he was affiliated with the Russian futurist um, poetry movement. He was, and they're very, that's a very different poetic style than, than his poetry. I think what it was about him was that he was... This voice, I think, from the old world, this very sophisticated intellectual voice that nevertheless, you know, was speaking to Soviet audiences and and, and trying to make sense of the past and the future mm. um, and, you know, bringing those perspectives together, because obviously he had these 
you know, deeply traumatic Soviet experiences and was was part of the Soviet experience, but also was coming from a kind of pedigree, uh, this old world pedigree, um, coming from a family that, you know, was very prominent during Tsarist Russia. Mm. Katie, I'm, I'm sure this reference will baffle Annie, um, but I find myself looking at pictures of Boris Pasternak and seeing someone who looks a little bit like Kenneth Williams and a little bit like David Williams. I don't see those resemblances, but I do see him as a man of uh, great personal dignity, has a, a very uh, you know, sensuously modeled lips and and deep, soulful eyes. Good cheekbones. Yeah, cheekbones, cheekbones to beat the band. So he comes from a pretty arty household. His dad's a painter. Mom's a, a pianist. Tolstoy's a family friend. Um, was Tolstoy an inspiration for Boris Pasternak? His father actually, oddly enough, con- converted to, to Tolstoyism, which was a, a special Tolstoyan brand of Christianity. And so they, they were, yes, he, when Tolstoy died, Boris Pasternak's father was contacted and, and they went to, you know, the memorial. I mean, they were there. Mm. Um, so, so yes, he was very, and I think, you know, because the father had been so influenced by Tolstoy, Tolstoy's influence is kind of throughout, was throughout their estate, you know, his, his, he could be felt. His yeah. presence could be felt, I think. And did Tolstoy affect Boris's approach to, to how he, wrote because I understand Tolstoy was was known for his compassion for the underclass and you know for somebody who was coming from a bourgeois background to be paying attention to the peasants I think wasn't always the done thing no I think in many ways I think thematically they have a lot of commonality in the sense that they're engaging with similar themes um and and sort of bringing this kind of nobleman protagonist into the sort of rough realities of life and and having them navigate those. Um, and, and so they're both really attached, I think, to some kind of authenticity, that authenticity of life, the roughness, the the violence, all the all the things. At the same time, stylistically, Pasternak is profoundly different from Tolstoy. Um, you know, Tolstoy is, is, has a, just a different, has a more accessible, I think, style. Um, whereas Pasternak is a lot more complicated, more sophisticated. Like the famous joke in the Soviet Union was, um, I haven't read Pasternak, but I condemn him. Right, because you couldn't be on the side. It was uh, anti-Soviet to be pro-Pasternak, I suppose. Correct. Yes, that kind of d- dramatic overreaction. So he seems to get, Boris seems to get chewed over, Annie, um, as everyone does in Russia by the great events that sweep the nation, whether it's the end of the First World War or the October Revolution. The thing that surprised me reading about his life was for a man from significant wealth, he sticks around. He doesn't flee, he doesn't move to Oxford like some of his family, doesn't go to America, he sticks it out. Yeah, I think it's really important to him that he was the one who stayed, or he was one of the ones who stayed. Um, Anna Akhmatova famously also stayed. I think he really identified um, as a Russian. Like many other intellectuals in the beginning of the Soviet Union, there's just this tremendous energy and excitement around this project. Right. People believed in it, you know? Like, it was this incredible thing. And and there are people who sincerely believed in it, and Petronak wasn't the only one, who thought, well, maybe this is good change. Maybe something good can come out of this. And then I think at some point, all you know, almost all, all of them lost faith in this, you know, in this experiment. And I think that happened to him too. But it's interesting because when all the stuff with Dr. Zhivago plays, you know, plays out later, he insists, despite knowing the Soviet 
the Soviet experience, despite everything that he knew, that he cannot live and be anywhere else. And I think that's really interesting. It's so interesting. And also, it's so romantic. You know, it's just the thing that you can imagine. Uh, almost a cliched version of a writer would adopt that whole identity with the country to the extent that it seems like self-sabotage because, you know, before he even writes uh, Dr. Zhivago, before he wins the Nobel Prize for that, Stalin's around and engaging in all of the depredations of the Stalin purge. And you'd think that would be a big turnoff. But no, Pasternak sticks it out. And it seems like he and Stalin have some kind of vibe going. Can you talk to us about how Pasternak like kept writing to him about things? Like, why did they get this correspondence going? I would just be keeping my head down. The amount of people who I think wrote to Stalin was... <laughs> was larger than one would imagine. Really? Um, I think his first encounter with Stalin was actually over the phone. Um, and this was in 1934, where, around 1934, Osip Mandelstam, another Russian writer, um, in his in this kind of tremendous, bold, unexplained, <laughs> and not prudent gesture, writes something known as a Stalin epigram, which is a kind of ridiculous, you know, really powerful, truthful poem in which he completely satirizes Stalin and all the ways in which, you know, he's this primitive, foolish, authoritarian leader. So this was a bad idea, obviously, on many levels. And so um, eventually this epigram um, circulates all the way up to the Kremlin and Stalin reads it. And needless to say, he's not at all pleased. And Pasternak and Mandelstam are close, and, Mand and Pasternak tries to intervene on Mandelstam's behalf. And so eventually this ends up with, and, and goes to Bukharin, um, you know, the Kremlin insider, and, and eventually Stalin calls, Mand Mand calls Pasternak on the phone. Imagine um, that, Katie, getting a phone call from Stalin. Yeah, Joe here. You know, and it's this really awkward situation where, you know, you have Mandelstam's wife and another friend sort of listening in, <laughs> trying to see, like, advocate, you know, push yeah. for him. Sure. And, and I will, I mean, I'll also say that Pasternak, said to, you know, expressed to Mandelstam that this was a very dangerous thing that you did here, that, that you know, I, I, will, I will say I have never seen and I've never read this poem. This is extremely dangerous. So he was very concerned that this was a really radical gesture. Now, Stalin calls him and says, well, what are people saying about this poem? <laughs> so It's so high school. I know, I know. I want to hear. What do they say? Those people that I don't care about that I'm throwing in prison, but tell me what they say. And I think Pasternak basically said, well, nothing. We say nothing. We've, we've not talked about it. It's, you know, <laughs> what poem? I'm surprised he could still hold the receiver. If I got a phone call from Joseph Stalin at the height of the Great Purges, I'm, my hands are too slippery with sweat. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so, and so there's Pasternak going, poem, what poem? And then what does Stalin say? Well, and, and then, well, he also said that him and Mandelstam had very different ideas about yeah. literature and philosophy and, po and and so in this moment 
Stalin mocking him, because um, I think he probably enjoyed people's fear quite a bit, says, well, I see you can't even, you can't even stand up for your friend. Uh, so he, uh, so Stalin gets the measure of him, and then, uh, but does, uh, does Pasternak feel like a schmuck, because he's had to implicitly betray his friend? Yes, I think he felt really humiliated and embarrassed with himself that he didn't do better, because Mandelstam was thrown in prison uh. and, and he felt like he, and goodness, he, the man didn't have any power. Stalin yeah. had all the power. This was a horrible power dynamic. It was a game. Um, there was a, the writers in the Soviet Union had a union and, and they were told to put their names into a statement, basically supporting the death penalty for some other writers and, and Pasternak refused, um, even though they threatened him. And he actually appealed at that point, again, directly to Stalin and talked about, at this point, talked about his family's strong Tolstoyan connections, because Tolstoy was a pacifist and this idea that, you know, um, and, and he put his own life in Stalin's hands and said, you do whatever you want to me. But I, I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to be an arbiter of life, someone else's life and death. And I think shortly thereafter, Stalin might have said, oh, just leave this guy alone. He's yeah, too. I love this story because apparently he said to his underling, uh, do not touch this cloud dweller. As in, like, he's, what is he, like, head, head in the, in the clouds? clouds or, yeah. yeah, like and, Doesn't understand and, the way the world works. Yeah, and also kind of like a, oh, don't execute him. It's almost like the closest Stalin gets to, you know, love. Don't, <laughs> don't execute him. It does make me think, though, that that point you're making, Annie, about the power of literature and writers in Russia, I can't imagine a situation, Katie, where uh, Eisenhower is on the phone to oh, right. Arthur Miller or Norman Mailer or whoever else or Jack Kerouac or Jack Kerouac to pick his brains what do you think I should do with dot 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 yeah yeah so he's in a remarkably powerful position isn't he yeah Pasternak. strangely so yeah and I think literature I think literature is strangely powerful in Russia I mean you know and not just in this case but in every case I mean there's a strange power that the writer has in this system of total authoritarianism. And also just the fact, so it's already, it's a powerful thing and it's so well regarded and revered by the public. So that means that if you're a prominent writer, you're already in a position of risk. And so he's taking a risk. He can even feel the risk when he starts working up Dr. Zhivago. Can you talk to us about what themes he wants to address and how he starts to approach his masterwork. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, again, there's a number of different things here. And I don't think of him as a sort of like overtly political person either. But because he's a writer, he immediately become everything he does is politicized and, and, and placed into this larger arena. So, yeah, he's writing about kind of the revolutionary period and the, you know, the decades around it. And so, of course, it's a very political period, but he's just, I mean, he's thinking about it philosophically. He's very interested in the sort of individual versus the collective. And of course, in the Soviet Union, it's all about the collective. But even that in the Soviet Union, where all art had to serve the system and be political, is a kind of, is an act of resistance. And he's pretty much writing his own story or basing elements of Dr. Zhivago on himself, is he not? Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have this other kind of nobleman protagonist and, and the ways in which he deals with the sort of civil war and, and later years, you know, the, the dramatic traumas of that period. And it's an incredibly violent period. Um, and 
And I think a lot of it is uh, sort of, you know, either just Pasternak's own life or Pasternak's school friends is a way to sort of remember and and process that period that trauma for him and in very deeply sophisticated lengthy um i mean this is i think in many ways one of the more complicated novels in in russian literature there's also uh, a lot of romance in it annie and boris himself wasn't shy of the smooch he <laughs> was married twice and then he had this long running affair with olga which sort of mirrors the long-running affair that Zhivago has with Lara in the book. So there are two Olgas. <laughs> so Pasternak has many, um, many romances <laughs> that uh, that one could talk about. But um, but we will focus on on the second Olga. There was an Olga that was his cousin, that was then his friend, but they sort of had some kind of romantic uh, feelings. Um, anyway, the other Olga, Olga Ivinskaya, I believe, is who you mean. Um, with Olga, he was married, and I think he thought that his wife would somehow not not be upset <laughs> about this particular um, adventure. And of course, she was very upset. But eventually, of course, the KGB also became involved, right? Because no aspect of his life, even his, you know, infidelity could be left unpoliticized. And so, yeah, so Olga um, eventually was arrested and put in prison and, you know, and Pasternak felt that there was, they were expecting her to sort of turn it on him and give details about him. He really respected that she never ever, that she kept her resolve to the very end and was courageous. But I think for Pasternak, when they did that to Olga, he, at that point, I think, every time referred to Stalin as a murderer. Like there was no... That was the final straw. There's a line, Katie, which might be the most romantic of all, when uh, Pasnak has found out that Olga has been arrested and taken to the infamous Lubyanka prison in the middle of Moscow. And he's speaking to a friend that he's crying his eyes out and he says, everything is finished now. They've taken her away from me and I'll never see her again. It's like death, even worse. You know, this is stuff I've never considered before, so I'm going to take a minute and uh, ponder, and uh, we'll be right back with you. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. The strange thing about Pasternak, Annie, is that he only actually writes one book. All right, it is a blockbuster, it is a thriller. Um, it takes him almost 20 years to finish. And I found it really strange, this idea that he knows it probably won't be published in the Soviet Union. And actually, the fact that it gets out to the wider world and becomes such a huge hit is in itself an incredible story. Yeah, no, I think this idea that these writers were writing for what we call for the drawer, 
this is a kind of famous phrase when you talk about this period. I mean, Bulgakov, you know, similarly, Master and Margarita for the drawer. Um, they knew this. They were doing this, I think, to a large part for themselves, for their art. Um, and I mean, this is how people survive. Yeah, it's like for their sanity as well. Yeah. And so I think he wrote this and he wrote this and it was a labor of love. It was his masterpiece. And then somehow he had this option to publish it you know, through Italy. And of course, the KGB found out and told them to tell them, do not publish it. Um, but, you know, I think the interesting thing for me is that the our very own CIA here in the United <laughs> States. Good old CIA. I know. I was like, the CIA of all, you know, it's such strange encounters in the life of Pasternak. First <laughs> Stalin, then the CIA. I don't know that they engaged with him directly, but... Um, but the, they really had a huge priority to publish Dr. Zhivago and get it out. It's actually a very smart idea um, that, that maybe the people of the Soviet Union, when they see this book out and about and they read it and they understand that it is just a masterpiece, you know, it's an artistic masterpiece that captures their experience during the Civil War, during the, you know, revolutionary period, they will they will understand how absurd it is that this work cannot be published in the Soviet Union. Didn't they have some sort of skullduggery where they got their hands on some pirated copies and then uh, like photographed each page carefully and then translated it into Russian? I mean, it was all some sort of, you know, because, of course, it was translated around the world in many different languages, but not obviously in Russian for a Russian audience. So that was their input, wasn't it? It's just so funny that this novel, the Dr. Zhivago, that this work of literature, this deeply sophisticated, complicated, modernist masterpiece somehow becomes a high priority for the central intelligence. Um. <laughs> and it's a massive hit, Annie, with everyone who reads it. So the first English translation is rushed out into the shops in August 1958, which is probably when Billy Joel starts hearing about it. It spends 26 weeks in the New York Times bestsellers list, which is pretty remarkable. But back in Russia, there's a not so much a review from a future head of the KGB as, uh, as an implicit criticism, which is, a pig never shits where it eats. Um, it turns out that this line was actually from Nikola Khrushchev himself in a little bit of literary criticism. <laughs> Within the Kremlin, was there a sense that there was anything to be gained from this or was it just seen as a catastrophe that uh, one of their writers had gone rogue like this and was making a big success? Um, I think it was seen as a catastrophe and this was very foolish. And I think Pasternak, again, was put, you know, once he got the, you know, once he got the Nobel, um, you know, I think he initially was very, he was very proud and flattered for good reason. Um, because he's an artist, because this is an incredible honor. Um, and, you know, Tolstoy didn't even get the Nobel because he was so radical. Um you know, you can imagine that this is something that he's deeply proud of. And and there was a lot of concern that he would not be, if he left to go to Stockholm, he would not be allowed back into the Soviet Union. And he wrote, um, extent, he eventually wrote a private appeal to Khrushchev, of whom he had no particular love or appreciation, um, and said, you know, I am, you know, I am tied to Russia. I belong here. I cannot, I can't be away from Russia. I will die, basically. Um, and, and, and I need you to... That 
that I've told them that I will not accept this. You know, I have done, I think I have written something that is worthwhile for Soviet literature that could be of use to this country. But, you know, that is all I have attempted to do here. And, you know. So how does Pasternak cope with all of this censure and threats to deport him? How does he keep going, what does he do after the book is published? He becomes a lot more philosophically oriented and and sort of more intellectually oriented, um, even more than he was, which he always was. Um, But I think he just retreats um, further. So he was in this curious position of when he died in 1960 of lung cancer. Uh, His book, his great work, Dr. Zhivago, still was banned and so technically could not be read. So the thing that he's most famous for is still not legitimate or legitimized by publication in his home country. When was it finally allowed to be published in the Soviet Union? Um, I mean, as late as 1988, which, you know, is a very, at the same time, I will say, at least he knew that I was out because there were other Soviet writers like Vasily Grossman. They took his life and fate also published in the 80s out West. The KGB took it and he thought it was destroyed. And eventually he died of cancer um, and, and thought, I have lost all of my life's work. Right. So Pasternak on some level knew right. that at least it was out, that it was not lost. And I think that would have made a difference. And in a very eerie mirroring of Dr. Zhivago's funeral in the book, uh, when Pasternak dies, he has he is celebrated by people who find out uh, through notes that are left at the train stations in Russia that there's, you know, there's a funeral going on. Pasternak's memorial is happening and people travel in droves out to his little dacha in the country to celebrate him. Yes. And the system made everything, did everything in their power to completely, you know, minimize his death. Um, but but yes, all these people went to attend his funeral in Pyrdjelkina, and um, people were threatened, and people were people attempted to silence people. But there were people actually reciting his poetry. I'm interested in the fact that uh, now, from what we understand, that Putin is trying to rehabilitate the image of Stalin. And of course, uh, good snigger there from Ali. Yeah, it it, uh, seems like a tough row to hoe. But I'm just wondering if that boomerangs on Pasternak's work and on Dr. Zhivago in particular, because you know it's an implied, more than implied, criticism of the purge. And I'm wondering whether um, how what the chances are you think of Pasternak's work being held in high esteem of the powers that be in Russia now? Well, the powers that be in Russia now, oddly enough, yes, they, they continue to also be invested in literature and they have certain tastes. So oddly enough, Dostoevsky, who during the Soviet Union was not, was problematic, mm. has now become very popular is appropriated in inappropriate ways and there's a suggestion that somehow there's a strong nationalist ideology in his works um and then tolstoy is minimized and elided because of his whole you know pacifism and and belief in in sort of anarchy and and sort of you know nonviolence and all these things that don't aren't in keeping with what's happening right now yeah um you know i think the one interesting connection that i see between kind of the present and pasternak though is the 
this moment where I don't, I'm sure you all know about this, but you know, the Alexei Navalny went back to Russia. Yes. Um, and, and it, and you always think like, why, why, yeah. you know what they're going to do. Yeah. And they did, they put him in prison. But when I was, when I was just in preparation for this, was reading and thinking about Pasternak, I think of Pasternak's letter that I cannot be a Russian writer and not be in Russia. I, I, I belong here. I am here. This is where I can be myself. And, and I see a similar kind of move on the part of Navalny where he's like, well, I can't be a Russian politician in another country. I, I can't be a voice of resistance in Russia from somewhere else. I have to be here. So it was a kind of moral mission for so many of them to be there with their people and to serve them and to have that voice coming out of a sort of a Russian, from Russia. Annie, how do you think Pasternak managed to not get killed or sent to the gulag? Because he, he's <laughs> such a survivor. And was it wiles? Was it dumb luck? Was it the courage of his partner, Olga Ivinskaya? I think he was probably very reserved and very careful, too. I think that's really important, too. I don't think he ever said too much. I think even Dr. Javago, like he doesn't, he could say so many other things that he doesn't say. He's very restrained. So I would say restraint, um, but also not, uh, he doesn't compromise himself. But, but you know, you may think about that conversation we talked about with Stalin, you know, he doesn't criticize, he doesn't say too much. He doesn't think one should go out there and, you know, fling things at the regime and provoke. You know, I think he hates them every bit as everyone else, but I think he's very careful. Um, and I, and again, I think he became so famous that at that point, um, in order for them to harm him, they would have made him into a martyr. Um, and they, they, they couldn't, you know, even they didn't really allow themselves those kinds of, you know, decisions and mistakes. And he was beloved because of this book, um, even though people were, you know, he was beloved and hated, of course, but, you know. And is it a book that still has resonance in Russia today, Annie? Are people still reading Dr. Zhivago? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. Again, because of how that time was, there isn't a ton of, you know, masterpieces right. capturing that experience. Right. Um, there are others, like, and it, because the people were erased, you know, another writer that writes about, for instance, the Civil War, um, is Isaac Babel, another writer of Jewish descent. Um, and, and we didn't talk enough, we didn't talk about Pasternak's Jewishness, but that is also there, mm. right? Um, but, but this is another writer who wrote about it, and then he was erased, and we didn't discover him until the 80s. So I think in some ways, Pasternak had this advantage that, you know, somehow the book got out. So I think he made his mark. I think they tried to silence him, and I think he made his mark. It shames me to say it, Annie, but I haven't read the book. Uh, Dr. Zhivago, in preparation for today's episode, um, there's a few other big books, Katie, that come up in Billy's song. We've done On the Road by Jack Kerouac, and we have done Catch It in the Rye. Peyton Place. Peyton Place, of course. So my question, Annie, in my ignorance is... Does Dr. Zhivago hold up today? It's a decent length book. It's about 148,000 words, nearly 600 pages. What I'm saying, Annie, is when I finish today, should I go to the bookshop by Dr. Zhivago <laughs> and read it on the train home? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you should. I think it's going to take you a while, but I think you should. 
<laughs> I think it's worth your time, but it's 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 going to take you a bit. You might have to do a couple of extra train trips and a few extra stops there, Tom. Katie, you are giving me the sort of look that says, <laughs> I know you're going to watch the film instead. <laughs> Omar Sharif, I'm oh, telling you. I'm telling you. And, you know, Julie Christie, no slouch. Yes, yes of course. Of Annie Kokoboba, thank you so much for bringing Boris Pasternak to life. This has just been transfixing. Katie, whenever we consider whether Billy Joe has made a good decision, I find myself feeling warmer and warmer and warmer towards him because, all right, he's a jock sometimes. Oh, he is. For baseball references and counting, he likes his boxing, but also there's the softer sides of Billy where he takes note of the life of a great Russian novelist. Well, I'm kind of interested that he went with Pasternak rather than Dr. Zhivago, Dr. Z, because I would have thought that would be the easier, more crowd-pleasing reference. But Is this a rhyme issue, Katie? Could be a rhyme. Could be rhythm, could be rhyme, could be pacing, or he's just showing off. Looking at the lyrics now, Katie, Little Rock, Pasternak, Mickey Mantle, Kerouac. Oh, there you so go. So you've gone Zhivago there. Farago. What else can you rhyme with Zhivago? It's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, he had he had a list. He had a, a long list, didn't he? And he was doing some crossing out and some subbing in and out. Billy's very thorough when it comes to matters that concern our friends in the Soviet Union, and that includes the writers. He certainly is. One other thing, Katie, before we go, that I've noticed, um, obviously I referenced my dad's famous dance with Julie Christie. Yeah. The fourth of my dad's famous stories within the family, and one which came out relatively recently, so we knew for a long time about the England World Cup one and the Beatles twice and the Julie Christie one. One which popped out relatively recently was the story slash claim that he was friends for one summer with French ambient composer Jean-Michel Jarre. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is your dad Forrest Gump? No, he's not Forrest Gump. Also, he's in no way musical. So the, the Jean-Michel Jarre thing seems to make no sense until you discover that Jean-Michel Jarre's dad was called Maurice Jarre and he was a composer and apparently he was performing for a summer somewhere in England and Bogner Regis. Bogner Regis or Folkestone, something like that. And he brought his young son, Jean-Michel, who uh, was in some sort of hotel slash B&B. And my dad's big sister, who's 18 years older, ran a B&B. This is where the story gets a bit confused. Right. But there are legitimate reasons to think somehow my dad may have hung out with Jean-Michel Jarre. The reason I mention it is because Michel Jarre did the score for the film Dr. Zhivago, he did the famous Lara's la, thing. La, 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 la. No, 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 no. <laughs> Is that your balalaika? <laughs> Do I sound like I'm underwater? <laughs> Do you think it'll sound better on a kazoo? Katie, everything sounds better on a kazoo. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, that is a tremulous, a tremulous, tremulous kazoo. I, I'm doing mine with a sob. I play, what, I'm, I'm playing Lyra's theme with a sob in my kazoo. <laughs> it's, it's what Boris would have wanted. <laughs> Oh, I can just, I'm just conjuring Julie Christie's glacial beauty mm. with that rendition. 
Well, we can have a moment to pause to think about Julie's glacial beauty. But, Katie, we also need to talk about the less glacial beauty of Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle, another baseball player. What a surprise. <laughs> One more from the Yankee stable. That is our next episode. Good. In the meantime, Katie, if people would like a podcast to listen to, we would heartily recommend The Secret History of Flight 149. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're going on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. Oh my gosh, it might sound far-fetched, but in August 1990, this really happened to the passengers and crew of British Airways Flight 149. And what followed has been dubbed the most shocking government cover-up of the last 30 years. And now there's a new podcast about it. Yeah, journalist Stephen Davis has been reporting on this story for the past three decades. And in this series, you'll hear directly from the hostages, the people used as human shields by the Iraqi regime. The secret history of Flight 149, we think you'll find it fascinating. Hey, and everybody, could you follow us? I mean, I don't want to beg. Don't make me get down on my knees and beg, but I am. Uh, You can follow us, please, at Spread That Fire on all the socials, and also subscribe. And you can subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on Apple to get ad-free versions of the show, as well as bonus content. Yeah, and there are loads of other crowd shows on there, all in the history and the pop culture strand. So, if you're into fascinating, unique, real-life stories of real-life people, go and check out the Crowd Stories channel now. Uh, If anybody you know, and that person may be yourself, is an expert in any of the topics coming up, why don't you let us know? Because we need to get you on our show. (laughs) (laughs) That was surprisingly menacing, your kazoo laugh. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present 
If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.